seeing it on the confidence monitor, so I was curious. Um, this morning, what I want to tell you is that uh, there's a part of me that wanted to preach a different sermon from uh, the one that you're going to hear from me today. <laughs> and it's not, it's not that I, I resent preaching from the lectionary. In fact, this is the first time ever in my whole life that I've had a chance to preach from the lectionary, and it's, been, it's really cool. I was excited about that. And it's not, it's not even that I wasn't excited about Micah chapter 6. Uh, it's a beautiful, powerful, resonant text. I and mean, we just heard it, heard it read. It's, it's been incredibly important to uh, many Christians for many centuries, including myself. So it wasn't the text, and it wasn't even the, the recent events with uh, Tyree Nichols, although that would justify a, a rapid last-minute change in a sermon. Instead, I'm not preaching the sermon that I thought I was going to be preaching. Uh, it has more to do with kind of what's been going on in my personal life. Um, currently, I've been working on a um, master's degree in couple and family uh, therapy, and this is a picture of me um, at my clinic. I've been working at uh, the Behavioral Health Clinic as a trainee therapist at the LGBTQ Center of the Desert in Palm Springs, and it's been wonderful, and I've learned so much, and I'm almost done. Um, yeah, thank you. So one of the things that's really cool about uh, uh, marriage and family therapists is that the field really, really puts an effort forth to take a systems approach uh, to problems and things that people are going through. So that's in, in contrast to like maybe a more linear or analytical approach. And it's not like a, um, a value statement. It's just a, a different way of thinking. And so in, in marriage and family therapy, we think about people as a broad system that, that are connected with all kinds of different people, and they're a part of a socioeconomic network, and they're a part of a culture, and they have histories, and they have genetics, and they have all these things going on. And so as therapists, we, we really try to take the whole picture in. And it's been really a great thing uh, to work on for me. Um, and so this last, I think it was December or November when I talked to Craig about this particular date of preaching and I read the text, Micah chapter 6, I immediately read the text and thought, oh, Micah's not, he's not speaking to a bunch of isolated individuals, he's speaking collectively to a community. That's what I want to preach about. Because in my life, when I've heard this text preached, almost always it had to do with, you know, personal salvation, right? Here's the way that you, here's what you need to do to, to please God as an individual. This is the thing you need to do to be okay with God. That's how I've always heard it. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to talk about how his message is a collective one. It's to a community. Oh, that'll be great. You know, he talks about how, how the, you know, God's community is one that, that looks after the most vulnerable vulnerable and the most marginalized about how um, in, in the community or, or in a community that is ordered around the good that justice is served and it takes sway over power and how religious uh, religions are judged 
essentially by how much and to what degree they make space for the other. And so, uh, for example, the sermon that I'm not preaching that I thought about, I might want to preach, one of the things I might have pointed out was about how um, Micah was a contemporary of, of the great big prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, lived during the very same time, and also Amos, right? But that Micah's perspective is from the countryside. He lived outside of Jerusalem, outside of even Jericho, which was outside of Jerusalem. He lived way out on the countryside, and it was during a time of widespread Assyrian invasion. And so he was witness to the real-time effects of this invasion um, empire process that was going on. And so his critiques are specifically, if you read the whole book, his, his critiques are specifically driven towards those who are in Jerusalem and those who are in Samaria who are in the cities who from his perspective are, were standing back in their ivory towers pontificating about what cultic sacrifices and what ritual purity God wants, all while they were neglecting the poor and the most vulnerable who were being crushed by this invading force. I thought I might talk a little bit about that. Likewise, likewise, uh, I, I thought it might be interesting to talk about how when Micah uses the word walking humbly with God, that word walking is from the Hebrew word malak, and it's, it's from the same root word that's used to describe the leklaka, which is Abraham's going out in Genesis chapter 12. It's a really important story. It's, a story. it's known as the leklaka, and it's the same word. That, that Micah uses. And, and for me, that conjures the story of Mount Moriah and, and, and Abraham going up the side of Mount Moriah with Isaac and then meeting God at the top who says, I don't want your sacrifices. She says, I'm not angry with you. You don't need to do this. I thought that might preach. But, but that's not the sermon that we're going to do today. <laughs> I also thought I might preach a sermon about how Micah is mocking his audience in this passage. And he really is. That question that we heard you, that we heard read just a moment ago, with what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I bring? Could I bring my firstborn as an offering? Blah, blah, blah. That question. A lot of times we read that in the text. And we read it as this outside voice, like, you know, it's going along in Micah's voice and he's talking about all the things that they did wrong. And then this outside voice that's penitent comes in and says, well, what do we need to do? No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. That question is asked in Micah's voice. It's asked with disgust. It's asked with disdain. It's a rhetorical question. It comes off a little bit more like this. Oh, when do I want to bring before the Lord? Shut up. That's the tone that we're getting here in Micah. He's mocking them. I thought we might be able to do something with that in this sermon. But I'm not doing any of those things uh, this morning, but you also you see what I did just do there. Um, for me, as I sat with it, I couldn't help but be confronted by the text, honestly. I couldn't help but to read it a little bit individualistically. 
I couldn't help but think about how Micah's call for justice and mercy and humility fit within my own life. And while it might have been good to get up on my high horse and to condemn certain forms of religion or certain aspects of culture, instead, I'm going to take the rest of the time that we have left to unpack those three themes, justice, mercy, and humility. And I'm going to talk about how, you know, really for me, how they strike me in my life. And uh, you can listen in. You, you can see how they apply to yours. Um, so the first one is do justice, right? Do justice. He says do justice. Now, a lot of times when we think about justice, um, we think about fairness, a lot of times the first thing that comes to our mind, like fairness is we want to let, like justice is when people get what they deserve, good and bad. Justice is uh, equitable outcomes and opportunities and consequences. In other words, we often think of justice as a well-organized, a well-ordered state of things, right? Now, I have loved uh, Walter Brueggemann's material for a very long time. He's a wonderful poet and an Old Testament scholar, um, and I've used many of his poems in many a sermon, and will not be using it today, but, but I do have a quote from him about justice, and his definition of justice challenges that a little bit and kind of asks us to think a little bit deeper about that fairness narrative. So I want to read this definition to you from Walter Brueggemann. He says, justice is to be actively engaged in the redistribution of power in the world, to correct the systemic inequalities that marginalize some for the excessive enhancement of others. Woo! I want to read that again because this is like a kick in the teeth. Justice is to be actively engaged in the redistribution of power in the world to correct systemic inequalities that marginalize some for the excessive enhancement of others. In this model... In Brueggemann's vision of justice, which really resonates with me, justice is active engagement. It's not believing something. It's not assenting to something. It's not a philosophy. It's not something we align with. It's something that we do with our bodies and with our voices and with our decisions. It's something that we do. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, that's really hard. <laughs> You know, I, I, by personality, I'm an Enneagram 9. That's the peacemaker type, for any of you who know about Enneagram. But I mean, I, I really struggle with confrontation. I struggle with people being mad at me, which that may be like kind of weird to hear me say because like I'm a transgender woman and it seems to be that like just walking down the street is confrontational. But it's the truth. I really, really would like to avoid confrontation if at all possibly. Maybe it explains why I didn't transition until I was 39. But my personality is that I, you know, I want to let people go. I want to let things go. I want to make peace. I want to see both sides. That's my impulse. But, you know, Micah's challenge, and especially if Brueggemann is right in his definition, 
his invitation or his call is to actually do something that probably will be uncomfortable. I mean, redistributing power is definitive, right? That's significant. Um, and, and Micah says in the passage, that just that, do justice. And I wish that I could tie this up in a really nice, neat bow and make it work simply and pleasurably for my Enneagram 9 self, but I just don't think it's possible. Doing justice is hard. And it's hard for everyone. It's hard for those who are in power, right? It's really difficult. Not very many of us are willing to to willingly give up power, and so we resist it. Doing justice is really hard for those of us who are in power. And it's also hard for those who are not in power. And a lot of times, for those who are weak, who are not in power, the work of doing justice can look like disruption. It can look like violence, even. even. It can look stabilizing and scary, or destabilizing and scary. That's doing justice. The next one that Micah talks about is loving mercy. Do justice and love mercy. Recently, in our city here in Redlands, uh, we had a number of visits um, uh, by uh, a group of people. I'm not going to say the name of the group. It, um, let me see. Uh, let's think uh, of how to say it. I had it in my head a moment ago. Um, self-confident young men would be another way of saying the, the group's name. Um, but just a lot of folks uh, showed up um, at a lot of school board meetings, Redlands Public School Board meetings, uh, city council meetings, and made a lot of really hateful, transphobic, homophobic, threatening, inflammatory speeches for a variety of reasons, including to have material for social media, um, But if you're like me, you're queer, you love someone who's queer, it felt like a a threat to my own existence in my own city. It felt really scary to hear some of those words spoken. And, And most of them were by folks that don't actually live in our city, but there were a number of others who were here. But what it felt like to me, to my queer self, is that there's a lot of people who would rather not see me, rather for me and people like me to not exist, rather to not have to even think about and even going so far as to dehumanize and to to dismiss my validity as a human being. Now, I I watched a number of the meetings live, um, maybe regret that decision, Um, But it was hard, and it was frustrating, and it was scary. And so I I bring all this up because I just want to throw out the question, what does loving mercy look like in a situation like this? This is in our town here, where we live. What does loving mercy look like? look like in a situation like this? You know, in American culture, at least my perception is that we 
We're not really that big on loving mercy. I don't know how big we are on justice either, but I feel like we're maybe a little bit bigger on justice than on loving mercy. I mean, if you love, if you, if you love mercy with the wrong person, you, like you get yourself into trouble in America. Like we, we're not really that big of fans of loving mercy. So what does it even look like? I can tell you what it doesn't look like. <laughs> I don't think loving mercy means no justice. I don't think loving mercy means pretending that what was said or what was done or what happened or the impacts of those things were made up or are invalid. I don't think that is how loving mercy works. In fact, I don't actually think it's possible to give mercy or to be a person of mercy if, if there hasn't been some kind of either accountability or confession or acknowledgement that, that an injury has taken place, Right? But at the same time, obviously, like, mercy doesn't mean, like, payback or getting my pound of flesh, you know? I mean, in this case, like, I, you know, I have temptation to call names, and that's why I had to think for a minute about how I wanted to talk about this particular group without being nasty and name-calling and ad hominem and cruel and whatever, because that's not mercy either, so, so for me, one of the things that I've found helpful, and, and I'm only going to give you one answer, and this may not be the full answer, but for, for me, one of the ways that I think uh, that, that loving mercy kind of flows out of me and my life is to kind of go back to that systems thinking, to go back to context. And, and maybe that's, maybe this is the therapist uh, in me that's sort of, you know, coming out, but, but I, I start to think for myself about what might it have been for these particular people when they were little. Now, this, this is stock photography. I don't have a picture of these particular gentlemen uh, when, they were, when they were little. But I imagine what it might have been like when they were little, and so we have this picture. I imagine what they might have been through in their life. And I imagine that maybe they were deployed to Iraq, maybe they were in Afghanistan, maybe they committed atrocities that they carry around horrible shame for. Maybe they were traumatized. Maybe they have PTSD for what they went through. Maybe they've been through relational disappointments. Maybe they've made bids for connection with other people and those bids were not received or didn't go the way that they wanted them to. Maybe, maybe they're queer themselves, you know? Maybe, maybe they have some, maybe they're part of the family and they hate that about themselves because we do that to ourselves sometimes. Maybe they, maybe they have some internalized homophobia and some internalized transphobia going on and it's way easier to point outward that hate than to face what's really going on inside. Maybe, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe there's socioeconomic frustrations. Maybe they lost their job during the pandemic or are underemployed or things didn't go the way they want to. You know, in America, nobody's poor. We just have a whole lot of failed billionaires, right? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it works, right? If, if you don't have a ton of money, then you just feel like you screwed up and you're not worth anything. Maybe, maybe there's socioeconomic contextual factors that are going on that's kind of leading folks to have this hate come out sidewards in 
their life. Maybe they had educational struggles. Maybe they'd really try to get into college and they couldn't. Or maybe they resented professors that they did have in college. Or maybe they struggled in school. Like, I don't really know. And I have a comment that I really want to make about biology, but I'm not going to be mean this morning. Maybe they're, like, we have no idea what may have gone on to that. And for me, thinking about these things that feels like loving mercy in cases like this. You know, the, the truth for me is that I am that too. It's a phrase that was kind of created by Ram Das, but it's, it's coined from the Upanishads. It's one of the four great sayings of the, of the Hindu scriptures. I am that too. And it acknowledges that even in folks who harm us, even in, in folks that we may be tempted to hate, we, we share a lot in common. And that maybe even the things that I hate the most, maybe there's some of that going on in me. And as I'm able to show mercy uh, for myself, I may be able to show mercy for others. So that's loving mercy. And then we have walking humbly with God. Walking humbly with God. You know, a lot of times in my life when I've heard this part of Micah 6 preached, I, I've tended to hear it as a bit of a sledgehammer. You know, like walk humbly with God. Like, yeah, you can, you can have the softballs of, like, all that, although I wouldn't call doing justice a softball, but, but you can have the softballs of loving mercy and doing justice, but you have to walk humbly with your God. And, and a lot of times for me, it, it sounds like a sledgehammer. And it's kind of thrown out there as like a, almost like a conversion thing. Like you need to walk with God like I say you need to walk with God or you're not with God. That's how I've heard it a lot of the times. Convert or be saved. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. To do it like me. So join or die. And what, what's, what's interesting to me or maybe like a little bit funny about this way of thinking about walking humbly with God is that a lot of times it's accompanied by a really rigid system or a really rigid vision of a sacrificial system. You know, this whole like system of sacrificial justice and, you know, God did this and we have to do this and then God has to do this and God's on, like it's this whole mechanistic thing where essentially like if I'm devout in the right way and if I show up to church on the right day and the right time and I give the right amount and I don't eat that and I do do this and I abstain from these things. If I do all of this, then I can force God's hand and he has to save me. I don't know about you, but that kind of sounds like walking arrogantly with God. <laughs> I don't, it kind of feels a little bit like trying to control God or trying to think that I can control God. One of the books that I read in preparation for this sermon was called Taking Back the Word, a queer reading of the Bible. And it's an anthology of a bunch of different um, essays and lectures from different queer theologians and teachers. It's brilliant, uh, really, really wonderful. And one of the chapters is by a Jewish um, rabbi named Rebecca Alpert. She's a lesbian woman. And she writes a chapter in this book about Micah chapter 6. So, of course, I read it. 
And it was very thought-provoking, very, very well done. And she, she sort of reimagines Micah chapter 6 as a coming out. She kind, of, she kind of overlays her own coming out story onto this chapter in Micah chapter 6. And, and for, for Alpert, she likens walking humbly with God as self-acceptance. And she talks at length about how it is only when we're laid bare, only when we're completely vulnerable before God, only when we're honest and authentic and true with God, can, can we really accept ourselves for one. But then she actually goes on to say, only then can we actually live the sorts of life that God would want for us. It's only possible to be humble before God in my full humanity. So Alpert actually, uh, actually switches the order of these justice, mercy, and sacrifice, and, or justice, mercy, and humility, and, and she starts with humility, and she says this, it's only those who come to self-acceptance who can begin to work, work toward creating a world of love and justice. So she says that the last one actually is the one that fuels the rest of them. And I know for me, it's been deeply true. Um, the process of transition, the process of coming out for myself has been the most deeply spiritual experience I've had in my life. And it's been absolutely every bit of walking humbly with God. I've never been more true. I've never been more honest. I've never been more real with the divine. And I think that it's created some really great fruit that I'm happy about and proud of in my life. And so in Micah chapter 6, I find a lot of things. And I find myself challenged and condemned and affirmed and saved, actually. And I want to close this morning uh, with a poem. I want to recite a poem to you from memory. It's a piece that's become really, really important to me as a human being, as an individual. It, it, it reminds me of my place in the world. It reminds me of your place. It reminds me of our collective place in this creation and before the creator. And today, I want to end with it because I think that it captures just a little bit of the spirit of Micah chapter Six. It, 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 the, the poem sort of suggests that, that having this obsession with the good or having this obsession with whether or not God is mad at us, uh, having this obsession with what I have to do to be okay with God, all of this power-mongering and hand-wringing and terror of the divine, it, it, it's totally silly. And Micah in this passage just sweeps them away and says, you are enough. You have a place in this world. And so does everyone else. And we can make it so. So I'm going to recite this passage. I'd like to invite you to 
you know, take kind of a posture of um, mindfulness or meditation or prayer. Maybe that means bowing your head and closing your eyes, whatever you'd like. We're going to pray this as a prayer together as we close the sermon time. It's a poem called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You may have heard it before. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes. Over the prairies and deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. No matter who you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. It calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things.